Hello, I'm Camilla Jansen, a GP in the New Forest in Hampshire, and I've been working with Wessex LMC to put together a series of educational sessions covering COVID, and today concludes this series. I've recorded an ed educational video covering COVID assessment and management, a practical guide for GPs, as well as a podcast, Discussions with an Emergency Doctor, which gives valuable insight into secondary care and how they are dealing with coronavirus. So these can all be accessed on the Wessex LMC site under the Education and COVID section. This session today will also be recorded and made into a podcast, so people also, so please also subscribe to the Wessex LMC podcast channel. So today we've got three brilliant talks, each followed by a brief question and answer session. I am aware that there is going to be a lot to cover and people will have a lot of answers and we will endeavour to answer as many questions as we can, but we will try and wrap up promptly in an hour. So if there are unanswered questions, we'll try and get hold of you afterwards. If people could please put their questions in the question and answer box, we won't be looking at the chat box, we'll be mainly looking at the question and answer box, so we will address them after the talks. So firstly, I want to give a warm welcome to Caroline O'Keefe. Hello, Caroline. Hi, Camilla, thank you. She's a GP working in North Hampshire, and she is the GP lead for the COVID hot hub and virtual ward in North Hampshire. So she's going to talk to us about COVID oximetry at home. So thank you, Caroline, and over to you. Brilliant, thank you very much, Camilla. That's very kind of you to ask me to come and talk today. Um, so firstly, I just wanted to tell, I suppose, a bit of a story about, about our journey and, and, and where we've got to. Um, so we in North Hampshire came together as, as six primary care networks. So we're covering a population of about 230,000. And we came together as a group in, in the first wave um, to set up a COVID assessment centre. Um, and we did a lot of work during that, looking at patients that we were possibly managing at home, not sending into hospital. And, and, and linked with some hospital colleagues and also another team in Winchester who were starting to pilot the use of pulse oximeters. Um, and I think the, the evidence for these, as you know, started to grow over the summer. And we, we were all quite involved in, in identifying how we could pilot this and how we could pilot it in a second wave. So on the 2nd of November, as we, as we sort of moved into a second wave, we, we reopened our winter assessment hub. Um, again, same six primary care networks and, and covering the same population. Um, and that was based out of a, out of a single site. And, and the difference this time is that it's now co-located with our COVID oximetry at home programme. So the type of people we see at the Winter Assessment Hub, um, any patient really with any form of viral illness, which is why it's called winter rather than, rather than COVID. We've got some rapid testing set up at that site, including the 15 minute test, which has been hugely valuable for identifying those patients who are COVID positive. Um, it's staffed by a lead A&P, a couple of GPs on rotations through from, from primary care networks and, and a couple of allied professionals as well um, and has been open really to, um, uh, to mainly primary care bookings, but we are taking plenty of bookings from, from other areas. So that, that's the hot hub it's, it's sort of based out of. Um, next slide, please. So as you'll see, and this is probably pretty familiar to, to any of you who are working within, within COVID at the moment, this, this slide just indicates a, a bit of a flow chart as to how we identify people um, who may need a, an, an urgent referral to hospital, and this is, this is from our hot hub initially or from our winter assessment site initially, um, who may need an amber assessment in hospital, 
or who may be someone who's who's suitable for, for management within COVID oximetry at home. And those patients are the ones we're calling a, a high risk green. So they're either people that we're identifying through our winter assessment hub or possibly through the emergency department or possibly following an, an, an AMBER assessment up at hospital. Um, and they're really patients who fall into those high risk categories. Um, if you see the, the, the yellow box on the, on the, on the bottom right of, of the screen, that gives an idea of what those risk factors are. Um, and that is um, patients with BAME ethnicity, um, an age of over 50. And I'll talk you through that in a second because that's quite a recent change. Um, a BMI over 35, mental health or learning disabilities, patients who are shielding, um, healthcare professionals, because we noticed that they did pretty, pretty badly in the first wave, and also patients who uh, just slipped off the bottom of the slide, but patients with underlying chronic disease. And that, that will be pretty familiar to, to all of you. But those are the patients we're certainly actively selecting um, to enter our COVID oximetry at home programme. Next slide, please. So the way the way we're set up, as I said, it's it's co-located with our winter assessment centre um, and opened again on the 2nd of November. So, so we're sort of halfway through week 13 at the moment. We're, we're running it as a seven day a week service. So in hours being staffed by primary care colleagues and, and out of hours using the Northampton Urgent Care uh, Service, who are out of hours provider. And, and as you'll see, that that interaction is pretty seamless. Um, our service is being run by a number of uh, lead AMPs supported initially by a care coordinator, although that model has had to change as our, as our numbers surged, um, but initially with a, with a staff of two. Of two. Um, and again, very similar to, to the models that have been rolled out all across the country, we wanted to make sure that we started this in, in a fairly simple way um, to enable it to be, to be able to be replicated. So, so at its most simple, we are identifying a patient who, who has COVID, who's potentially high risk of deterioration and giving them a pulse oximeter pack. And our packs are just big, bring, uh, just um, padded brown envelopes with some instructions in, some links to a fantastic YouTube video that was written by a, a local colleague, um, a paper diary initially where the patients can report their readings three times a day um, and a return envelope. And we ask patients to drop their, uh, their pulse oximeters back to a local surgery. Again, with referral pathways, we wanted to keep this as simple as we possibly could um, just to make us as accessible to as many people as possible. So we just have a simple email or a, or a telephone line, which is which is manned in hours and manned by one on one out of hours, just to allow us to pick up as many patients as we can. And, and we will take referrals again from the emergency department, um, from we'll talk a little bit about discharge. I can see a question came up about that. Um, so some step down patients um, and um, uh, and also mainly patients from primary care. So we started with quite a simple IT solution. EMIS is the operating platform across all the 15 practices and six PCNs involved. Um, yes. And uh, we were happy to, to initially onboard people into EMIS um, and then we were using the Accurix COVID monitoring flurry. Um, that worked well when our numbers were small. It, it was quite a, it, it was still quite a manual solution. So we have moved over onto the in-healthcare platform um, and we moved over on the 12th of January. So, so we're sort of three, four weeks into that. And I think because that coincided with our surge in numbers, um, we're, we're pretty grateful, I think, to be using something a bit more automated at the moment. But again, I, I think it's probably worth reiterating on, on a smaller scale, we don't need to have a fancy IT solution for this. This is something that, that at its most basic could be done with a, with a paper and pen and a, and a simple spreadsheet. I think just so important that, that that at its most basic, we're handing somebody a pulse oximeter uh, and checking in with them and seeing how they're getting on. 
So from the monitoring point of view, um, the COVID optometry at home lead ANP oversees that from a, from a clinical point of view. Um, she checks the data, looks at deterioration and, and acts. Um, and those who, who don't have access to digital solutions can absolutely still use a paper diary and, and a phone. So next slide, please. And this just gives an idea of, of what I've just described at, a, at its most simple. It is having a look into the individual notes, seeing if a patient has responded. And if those responses are within the, uh, the green range, then we're very comfortable with that. If they're within the, the amber range, we may need a referral to the amber unit. And obviously, if they're within the, the, the red range and escalation is appropriate, then we need to get somebody into hospital very quickly. So next slide, please. And this just uh, all I wanted to show you on this slide was just an idea of what our patient diary looks like and uh, and what some of the, um, the YouTube clips about how to use a pulse oximeter look like. I think I think there are a lot of resources out there now. The academic health and, and, and science networks have been really instrumental in making sure that everybody's got access to uh, to to lots of brilliant resource. So um, anyone who's struggling with that, um, do get in touch and we can signpost you to the right place. Next slide, please. So this is our current situation. Um, this data is a couple of days old, but, but we've seen over 2000 people through the Winter Hub and we've onboarded, we've now onboarded just over 500 patients into COVID oximetry at home. Um, we've currently got 174 active in, in, in the service um, and we've discharged 311. That, that was quite a sharp rise. Um, towards the end of December, we had 30 or 40 on, on the service and that jumped very quickly um, to just shy of 200. Um, by the middle of January. So, so we did have to respond pretty quickly to that. Um, 311 patients discharged, and we know that we, we detected a, a silent hypoxia in 42 of those patients and, and got them into hospital early. Although sadly, we've had 16 deaths of patients on the pathway. Um, next slide, please. So the next, these next couple of slides are, are really just a, some graphs just showing we, we think we probably are over our peak at the Winter Assessment Hub locally, and I think that reflects probably the national picture. Um, although our numbers are still fairly steady, we're not coming down. Certainly nothing like as quickly as the national picture seems to be coming down. Next slide, please. And this gives an idea of, of how quick that increase was of our active patients on, on COVID oximetry at home monitoring. Um, we peaked probably a couple of weeks ago, just short of 200 patients being actively monitored every day. Um, and we're now sitting at about 170, 175. And if you think each of those patients are submitting data three times a day, that is nearly 500 data points that need to be reviewed each day, which is why we felt a more automated solution was going to work better than, than, than something manual. Next slide, please. And so this is my sort of final slide just to chat through what we've what we've learnt from the last 12 weeks um, and also what what we still need to work on and what, and what we see our next steps being. So firstly, I think the move to the in-healthcare platform for us has been a very positive one. Um, if you look at the picture on the right hand side of this, this just gives an idea of what the in-healthcare platform looks like. Um, clearly, I've removed any patient identifying data, um, but it just every three times a day, each patient submits data that's either in the green, amber or red range. Anything in amber or red will have triggered a task to us and a text to the patient advising them on the next steps. Um, so it, it, feels, it, it feels comfortable and safe with that point of view, with the numbers that we've got at the moment. Um, but I think also it enables us for those patients who are submitting green readings, they get an automated text just saying, we're happy your data's in the normal range. 
Um, obviously, there are adjustments that we can make for patients' normal values, so we can adjust the, the parameters uh, to, to make them fit the patient, and we can do that when we onboard someone into the system. I think we learned a lot of lessons from some care home outbreaks we had two or three weeks ago. I think it's so important to make sure that local clinicians have um, been into homes, that we've got respect forms in place, that we understand what, what escalation is needed for patients, and I think we, we learned that lesson pretty quickly. Um, what we have been able to do is set up MDTs, and I definitely re recommend this to anybody who is running a COVID oximetry at home programme. I think there's a potential risk of patients and, and actually GP surgeries of, of patients getting slightly lost in the system. And I think what we've been able to do is we have a twice weekly meeting to strengthen links with the practices. We have input from palliative care, hospice at home. We also invite our secondary care colleagues who are running the secondary care virtual wards. And we all, it takes 20 minutes twice a week, just run through the list of patients we've got, identifying anyone we're worried about, people who are struggling with it. And I think that the practices have found that really valuable because ultimately we just need to make sure, um, particularly at the scale we're operating, that the practices still have that ownership. So I mentioned that we needed to increase our capacity from, from uh, for managing our, our COVID oximetry at home when we had that sudden spike. And what we did was we used people from the additional role scheme. So a combination of care coordinators, health and wellbeing coaches, social prescribers. And actually that's been genuinely brilliant just to see all of those teams of people working together. So we now have five people working on our, our COVID oximetry at home program at any one time, still very much overseen by our lead AMPs um, who provide that clinical oversight, but with the support from, from everybody else, which, is, which has been really valuable. Um, We've had a big push over the last couple of weeks locally about active case finding. And I think personally, I was quite surprised, I suppose, to see how many patients there were out there who were COVID positive and high risk who, who hadn't yet been scooped up by the system. Um, so I would certainly advise that people are doing that because those people are just as much at risk of going off. And if the first point they touch base with, with someone medical is, is as they're deteriorating, then we've possibly getting in there a bit late. So, so I think that's something that we've learned over the last few weeks. And finally, I would just suggest really making these strong links. As you know, secondary care virtual wards are increasingly up and running after the national mandate, and they're, they're taking people more on a step-down model. I think really important to just link up with your local secondary care virtual ward, identify which patients they're going to be managing and possibly which ones we may be managing, and identify some, some quite clear criteria for that. Um, we're certainly, as I say, meeting them twice a week and we also have a daily touch point just for our teams to just touch point, touch base with who's going in and into hospital and who's going out of hospital. And then finally, when patients are discharged from the service, um, certainly the in-healthcare platform generates a, a PDF file that's emailed to practices. So all of this data is then available to practices and they can, they can get a sense of what the patient's journey has, has been like through the, uh, through the system. Um, and before when we were doing it in a more manual way, we were able to send a similar sort of summary to practices. So I think um, probably in summary, I, this, this service has allowed us to, to monitor potentially vulnerable patients, absolutely. And it has allowed us to identify patients who are at risk of developing silent hypoxia and getting them into hospital early. So hugely valuable. We've learned a lot of lessons on the way about, about how to do that and how to do that efficiently, especially as numbers have spiked. And I think the platform has certainly helped, but I think probably my one message in summary would be that this is all about communication and creating links with all of the various partners involved. 
Um, and I think if we're able to do that successfully, so the system can work together in a way that this system has never worked before, um, then actually there are, there are plenty of things which will have an even longer impact um, for, for possibly diseases beyond COVID that we can use this collaboration for. Um, I'll, I'll move to questions just for the last three minutes because I'm very conscious about time, but thank you. Thank you very much, Caroline. That was a really good overview. Um, and I think there is a big pushback to patient taking responsibility for their own health and being aware of what their oxygen saturations are. And one point we had was if we see a patient face to face, we make a point of um, telling them what their oxygen, oxygen saturations are so that they start to become aware of it and start to think about it and start to um, take a bit of responsibility. And I previously did a, um, a podcast with the emergency department consultant and it really brought home the fact that people with COVID are not very symptomatic until quite a late stage. So they can come in with very low saturations. They can sit on the, ox the, the trolley in the hospital looking at their iPhone. Anyone else with asthma or other PE sort of disease that had significant low sats would be gasping for breath. But it, with COVID, it's not presenting that way. So that's the sort of important. I think that's exactly it. And I'm often having to have that conversation with patients before we onboard them. And they say, well, I'm feeling fine. And actually, that's the point. That's the time at which we want to get people is when they're feeling fine. Because in so many cases with silent hypoxia, they're still feeling fine, but becoming hypoxic. And, and the evidence is, is really growing that actually, if we can catch them before they start to feel unwell, they, they do do a lot better. Um, just there's a couple of questions in the chat in the chat box, which I'm very happy to, to tackle. Um, Helen's asked, how are, how are we collating our list of newly COVID positive patients to support active case finding? We've just got a pretty simple search set up in EMIS that looks in the last 24 hours or 72 hours after a weekend, um, looks for new coded uh, positive diagnoses. And then I have a, an, another EMIS code I use, which gets rid of them once I've, once I've assessed their severity, either referred them to the virtual ward or given some safety netting. So I'm um, really happy and, and just some, some straightforward, simple EMIS searches is how we're managing that as a PCN. Um, and I think locally, most PCNs are using that same solution. Well, I wanted to um, add into that one with um, mm. patients' COVID tests that are coming in. There's been some discussion with surgeries on how they manage those positive results and I think mm -hmm. there is a general um, encouragement that we actually look at those positive results, screen the patients and speak to people that are at high risk and do refer them into the service even though it is more work but there is COVID yeah. funding that follows. So, that. so I'm doing that for every every positive test that comes through my practice slash PCN because we're a large practice um, I will look at and determine what their risk is. If they're low risk I'll send them a text with some, safe, uh, some safety netting advice if they're high risk, I pick up the phone, see how they're getting on, and I offer all of them admission to the virtual, to their COVID oximetry at home. Thank you. I think we've got yeah. one last question. Um, are patients with abnormal news scores, O2 sats, generally admitted to hospital over the phone, and are hospitals generally happy with this? Uh, so the answer to that is yes. So if a patient is being monitored at home with, with pulse oximetry and they submit some saturations of 91% let's say, then the advice is put the phone down, call an ambulance and get into hospital. Interestingly, the hospitals uh, have been better at this. Uh, the, the challenge actually has been engaging the SCAS, which has now happened and SCAS are now being fantastic. But I think that was probably the bit of the jigsaw that was a little bit slower to happen, was making sure that we were all working to the same algorithms. And if everybody's working to the same algorithms, if 92 or below needs to go to hospital, 
93 or 94 needs an assessment, probably with a chest X-ray and bloods, 95 and above can safely manage at home. I think if we're all working to those algorithms, our secondary care, the ambulance service, the district nurses, the emergency department, then we're all talking the same language. And I think that's what's so critical about something like this, where so many different people are involved. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Caroline. That's a really good overview and has given me lots of um, information. So we'll take that on board and hopefully um, appropriately refer into the service. So thank thanks you. very much. <laughs> So my next speaker I would like to introduce, I've got two people coming on. We've got Dr. Robin Harlow and Karen West, and they're gonna talk about long COVID. Robin is Hampshire and Isle of Wight long COVID primary care lead. He's also a GP in Gosport, and he's also the CD for the Gosport PCN. And Karen is a physiotherapist, um, and she's also the lead for long COVID. So thank you both of you. I'll hand over to you. Robin, you're on silent. We can't actually hear you. We're still unable to hear you, unfortunately. You're able to hear me now? Yes, I can. Sorry about that. So uh, modern technology still can't get it right. Um, so, as I was saying, we're nicely going to talk about um, post-COVID syndrome, so picking up patients that have early on for their diagnosis of COVID, managing them in the, with support of primary care and secondary care, and then their journey back into uh, primary care and uh, the support and use of our services ongoing following that. Um, thanks very much for the introduction. So I think we are okay to not talk about who we are as the slide moves on. But there are some contact details there if, um, if any of you want to get in touch with us uh, following the uh, conversation today. So we're going to talk initially um, around the patient experience. So you may have already all experienced some um, yourself, those that are coming in with some symptoms suggestive of long COVID. Um, so but to put it in context, we thought we would do that first. Then I'll talk a little bit through long COVID definitions, some of the risk factors associated with that, some of the things we should be trying to pick up in primary care, how we can support assessment and then um, we'll then be talking about our Hampshire and Isle of Wight long COVID service that we've set up over the last couple of months and has now been running since the start of January um, and again some of the patient experience that we've had going through that. Karen. Karen, you're on silent as well for some reason. I don't know if you can change your settings. I don't know if you want to try talking again. Did you want to go on to one oh, of the God. slides <laughs> further on? Let me on my own. <laughs> yeah, no worries, absolutely. So camera back in a moment. So um to oh there we go we'll wait now karen's back so sorry about that camilla there we go. i can't we can't hear you step no. karen 
Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Thank you. Last thing I needed. Okay. No, nothing like a bit of stress before your talk. So they. <laughs> So uh, this is a 53-year-old woman that um, I met earlier this week. She was uh, unwell in February of March last year, as were her whole family. Her mother-in-law died and the patient improved initially. And then September time, uh, she relapsed and reported that it's worse than first time around. And just to, just to add to the complication, uh, she moved a significant distance from where she'd been living to take up her new job away from her abusive partner who um, has life-limiting disease secondary to COVID. She uh, lives with her four-year-old daughter. She has a very small social network, no family, um, and her four-year-old daughter is attending school and is known to the local Home Start scheme. Um, she's a research scientist working from home, trying to supervise PhD students. Um, and she's suffering with fatigue, brain fog, anxiety and breathlessness and her fatigue is overwhelming um, and she told me that she hadn't hoovered since October. Um, next slide please. So um, I assessed her via Zoom, she looked flat, exhausted and I could see that she was struggling mentally, she was struggling to find the words to express herself, she was quite tearful at times um, and when I watched her breathing, she was mouth breathing with an apical pattern, her accessory muscles quite active. Um, and she reported that her sats were running at between 89 and 95%. So I did a lot listening, um, talked about re-education of her breathing. So encouraging her to, know, to breathe through her nose, which she was quite reluctant to. Um, she said that she has lots of allergies and rhinitis. Um, but she did manage it, encouraged some shoulder girdle relaxation, engaging her diaphragm. And we talked about pacing quite a lot, um, pacing her physical and mental activities um, to try and get outside every morning to have a coffee in the morning because she was doing the school run and then spending the rest of the day indoors. Um, not getting out at all. We talked about mindfulness and relaxation and to be using relaxation in between um, activities at work, so between meetings, to give herself a break to just relax and wind down, give her body a chance to, to recover a bit before starting on the next task. Um, so we, we set some short-term goals for the next couple of weeks. Um, firstly around reducing her breathing dysfunction and developing skills in planning, prioritising and pacing so that her workload um, became a bit more realistic um, and she wasn't overtiring herself. To actually make that time for some relaxation between meetings and other things. Um, and we set some longer term goals and um, when I asked her to goal set, those were the things that she came up with first. Um, I felt they were a little over ambitious um, and to give us something smaller um, to really focus on um, would be helpful. So she's going to work on her breathing um, and do those other things. And I also suggested that maybe she do some singing with her daughter um, as a t an activity that they could do together something that would help her breathing dysfunction um, and 
at the moment and to to develop this bond with her daughter because at the moment she can't go to the park they can't play um but maybe something that you know shared experience that they would both find valuable thanks karen so in. thank you it gives a flavor of how people are presenting and and that sort of holistic approach we need to take to their care but also the wide range of symptoms and and the, the actual um, impact that it's having on their quality of life and their ability to function so um we started talking about our service pre-nice guidelines but they came up with some definitions um as as, as i say well as whilst we we're in the first few weeks of planning but acute covid is defined as being up to the first four weeks presenting with symptoms and signs of covid we generally try to manage that in primary care and support with primary care and many of you may be aware of apps uh, websites such as your covid recovery um there's ongoing symptomatic COVID, that's on between four and 12 weeks. And then after 12 weeks, which is the service that we've established, is defined as post-COVID-19 syndrome. Um, and if you take the four weeks and above, that's what um, NICE defined as long COVID. So it's signs and symptoms that develop during or after an infection that's consistent with COVID. As I said, it's more than 12 weeks long presents with a cluster of symptoms usually and they over, often overlap and they often fluctuate and vary in time and they may it's very difficult to say from the start whether someone is necessarily going to get COVID based on the severity of the disease but there are some identifiable risk factors um, that I'll talk about in a moment. There's been a study called the COVID symptom study that's ongoing at the moment um, and it's an, an app where you record your symptoms so if you are po um, COVID positive on testing, over the age of 18 years of age, you can sign up to this and report your symptoms. They've had over 4,000 people register with that, and that's given some really good data around what people are presenting with and which um, symptom clusters that are tending to be the most prominent. They've also um, have managed to pull some data together and are able with a sensitivity of 69% to predict whether you're likely to go on and develop long COVID. They suggest 14% or so will have symptoms at four weeks, 5% at eight weeks, and 2.2% at 12 weeks. And if we put that into context, when I last looked at the figures um, at the weekend when I was writing this, over 3 million, well, 3.8 million people have tested positive for COVID uh, in the UK. Of course, I've not been able to spit out for those over the age, um, those that are just over age of 18, but it just goes to show how many people were expecting to present with them with symptoms. So they've identified risk factors um, from their initial studies, um, suggesting that obviously if people that are older are more likely to suffer from long COVID, if you're overweight, if you're female, if you've got a history of asthma, and interestingly, if you pre present with multiple symptoms at the start of your um, COVID journey, um, then you're also more likely to go on and develop um, long COVID and post-COVID syndrome. The reasons why aren't necessarily known, um, there are some, papers coming through at the moment and there's a couple of links at the end that gives some sort of more um, physiological evidence as to why people are getting some of these symptoms but the question is whether partly it's related to um, sort of a persistent viremia, um, a weak or absent antibody response, relapse, reinfection, being part of an inflammatory condition or immune reaction and just general decondition and uh, deconditioning and mental health factors. As I said, many of the symptoms uh, affect multiple aspects of us. So um, they can cause psychological and psychiatric um, issues, neurological, um, 
abdominal, skin lesions, um, breathing problems, which Karen mentioned at the start, and just some generalized symptoms such as fatigue. And I'm just going to pick on a couple of those just to give a little bit more detail, but also to make sure that you are thinking about these when you are seeing patients with them um, with long COVID or post-COVID syndrome. So breathlessness and cough, fairly common, and say the, the rehabilitation team have got um, a, a lot of um, historical involvement with supporting these patients through pulmonary rehab and, and, and evidence behind supporting that. And we've talked already about some uh, auto-breathing patterns and how that can be supported. There's a cough cycle that uh, was available. Again, I think if you look on your COVID recovery, it gives a really good explanation as to why people develop cough. Um, and then also it gives you some techniques on how to manage that. A small number of people will go on to develop interstitial lung disease, but it is important to remember that you are in a hypercoagulable state, um, inflammatory response, and so you, you know, and obviously you're less active, so you are at high risk of um, being thrombotic and having episodes like pulmonary emboli. Um, and cardiovascular is obviously a, an important consideration. When checking oxygen saturations, we've already talked about silent hypoxia um, earlier on in, in, the, in, in the talk today. Um, but just to, again, recall, if you're over 96 sats and well and not symptomatic, um, that's reassuring. If you've got some symptoms associated with levels above that, you can do a sit-stand test. And again, Karen might talk about that at the end with some of our patients that they're doing. Um, but it's important if we're doing that and they are dropping in their saturations that that's also further investigated. It's important to think about cardiovascular causes. So again, these aren't always present at the time. So 20% of patients admitted to hospital will have um, some cardiovascular involvement. But even after several weeks, you can still have um, episodes. And that's why it's really important to consider that when you've got a breathless patient with you. Um, or someone presenting with chest pain or palpitations that you are doing um, a physical exam just to make sure that there's nothing um, clinically obvious that's related to their heart failure potentially and that you're doing ECGs to exclude any other underlying arrhythmias or any evidence of uh, pericarditis with its sort of classic appearance on the ECG. Um, chest pain I've just mentioned so again it can be of cardiac uh, origin and sort of an angina picture but people are also presenting, presenting muscular skeletal chest pain as well as lung burn. Fatigue is a very common symptom so um, I think a significant number of those that come through the service already presenting with either breathlessness or fatigue and then of course um, the, the psychological impact of having long COVID so anxiety and stress people are presenting with sleep disorder, depression, and then obviously for screening for people with post-traumatic stress disorder, particularly if they've had um, uh, ITU uh, stays in hospital. Rashi is slightly uh, unique, but I wanted to show a photo of uh, COVID toes. So again, if you've got some slightly odd rashes, it was mentioned actually within one of our GP meetings this week, um, chilblain-like lesions at the extremities, so it is a known condition, um, and one of the dermatologists did uh, refer back to the GP saying they thought that it was a, a possibly a COVID toe. Um, and then I'll, we won't talk about this today, but there are other symptoms that they can present with, and it's all on the slides or in the NICE guidelines. Important with the assessment, think about um, uh, underlying causes, so making sure pulse oximetry, blood pressure, people do still present with fever, um, a respiratory exam, and then thinking more holistically as well and doing a functional uh, state uh, assessment. And then looking about whether you should be doing bloods and ECGs and again, uh, chest x-rays. So there are indications for doing some of these, particularly around fatigue, breathlessness, um, and, and the chest x-ray, again, if they've had um, symptoms for 12 weeks and they've not had a chest x-ray and they're short of breath still, then the NICE guidelines do recommend you should be doing that 
So we've established, um, as I mentioned, across Hampshire and Isle of Wight, a rehabilitation service that is working in all five of our different regions um, with independent teams. And Karen's just going to talk through that and just give one more patient example. And then I think we're coming towards the end. Thank you. Next slide, please, Robin. So uh, GP refers into their service and we send out the patient a questionnaire to, so they can self-assess themselves using some validated measures of uh, breathlessness, fatigue, pain, quality of life, mental health and brain fog. Um, and then I assess the patient via Zoom, if possible, um, talk about their symptoms, set some short-term goals, plan some interventions, and set them up on the Living With app. Um, this is an app that was developed at Bart's and they've been using it for the last six months and it allows for light touch management of people with long COVID symptoms. Um, when we actually onboard people with the app, they'll be able to complete their uh, assessment questionnaires using the app. Um, they can set goals, um, the clinicians can track their progress via clinical dashboard and the app contains a library of resources for the patient, including advice and activities to manage anxiety, fatigue and um, exercises that are a bit more energetic for helping to recover some physical conditioning. Um, dependent on the patient need, um, that will determine how, how they follow how they're followed up. Um, we have a weekly MDT with a chest physician, um, local HP leads and colleagues from psychological therapies, as well as a county-wide MDT for the most complex patients. Next slide, please, Robin. So we started for business on the 4th of January. These are the patients that we've had referred so far. Um, and I've assessed seven of them. Their main symptoms of fatigue, breathlessness and symptoms relating to anxiety and what's been interesting that they've all been really highly driven individuals who are very frustrated about their situation. Um, I don't know how many we see some more whether the ones that have uh, come forward are the ones that uh, have been asking the GP for help and uh, are proactive and maybe uh, we'll see a greater variety uh, later on down the line. Next slide, please. Um, so interventions for these people. Um, I think the first thing is listening to them and validating their experiences. And the ones I've seen so far, giving them permission not to overdo things. They all want to push, they want to get better. And that is very often counterproductive. They need to slow down, establish a baseline of activity that is manageable so they don't boom and bust. Um, I've been encouraging them to go outside every day, even if it's not to exercise, just get some fresh air, get some daylight, working with them to pace and plan prioritise activities, looking at their breathing pattern and re-educating that if it's uh, abnormal, encouraging relaxation and mindfulness, uh, talking about sleep hygiene and signposting to other services such as going back to the GP or making a referral for themselves to go to psychological therapies. Um, thank you. So this is another patient that I've seen. She was a 60 year old woman who became unwell. Um, she was working as a care assistant in a care home at the time, uh, living alone, some difficult family dynamics. Uh, about to be made homeless and uh, has been sacked from her job. Um, 
So mostly this lady, she's suffering from fatigue, but she's got a couple of other symptoms. Um, and I just felt that it was easy to put everything down to COVID, but I've asked her to go back to her GP to talk about these symptoms. Um, she was referred following a telephone consultation, um, but she's actually presenting with right-sided chest pain and tightness and a bit of wheeze. So, um, and she's expectorating clear secretions. Um, so I've asked her to go back to her GP for a face-to-face -face appointment to uh, just rule out a chest infection. And I think I better stop there because we've run out of time. Um, Thank you so much. Sorry for um, rushing you a bit. There's a lot to go through. That's all right. Uh, I think it's obviously an area that we're going to see more and more of. As you rightly say, there are a lot of people that have had COVID and a lot of people with knock-on symptoms. We've had a couple of questions. The first one was asking about saturations drop and, and how long. And I just wanted to mention something about the previous um, education I've done around this. The, the advice I had is remotely we shouldn't be exercising patients to see if the saps drop because if anything happens to them and there's no one there with them they may collapse so this is very much an end point test if people are really on the edge they're either unwell enough to go into hospital but if they're on the, the edge it could be something you could do face to face do you agree with that and um, the other question is about COVID being a highly inflammatory disease would a D-dimer or CRP expect, be expected to be normal at 12 weeks? Because that's obviously something as GPs would be wanting to check before we were sending them into your service. I don't know if you've got any um, advice about that. Um, I did read um, in the, the sort of, I think whether it was on the BMJ, but essentially if it's negative, then we are reassured. Are you, are you seeing D-dimers and CRPs raised still, or is that something you haven't got experience? Not, yeah, I haven't got experience up to be able to answer that, yeah. Lovely. Well, I'm going to wrap up. Thank you both for your input. That was brilliant. Um, and we're going to do our last presentation. We've got Sanjay Patel, who's the infectious disease consultant from Southampton. And he's going to hopefully give us a bit of a whistle stop tour through paediatrics and COVID. So thank you, Sanjay, and welcome. And um, I'll let you share your screen. Very good, Camilla. Thank you very much. Um, can you see it or? Um, yeah, my screen's sharing at the moment. You're on mute. Yes, that's that's great, Sanjay. That's all come through. Just needs to go on to um, presentations um, view slideshow when you're ready. Yeah, Sam. very good. OK, splendid. so um, it's lovely to talk uh, to this group again. I think I last presented in October and um, a bit of an update on what we know about COVID in children and, and probably more interesting what we don't know um, about COVID in children. So um, quite a lot to get through, but I'm going to touch base on where we're at with mortality and morbidity in children and uh, talk a bit about the multisystem inflammatory syndrome. Uh, talk briefly about long COVID, but actually very interesting to hear what Karen and Robin had to say about that. Um, clarify what the current vaccine recommendations are, and then get into the nitty gritty about um, children and COVID in terms of their risk of infection and potentially transmission. Um, lots in the news about the unintended consequences of the pandemic on children, them being the, the lost tribe and all sorts of terms have been used. But, um, you know, I think a lot of that's true. Um, we've seen it coming into primary care and secondary care in terms of mental health and stuff. So talk about that a little bit. And then the million dollar question, which is about schools. And although I don't have the answer and I am not a politician, I can 
obviously share my views on that. So good news is, and this is some uh, admission data and death data, is that uh, children are definitely not getting particularly sick with COVID. We have seen one child um, in the whole of this pandemic, so pretty much in a year, who has been sick enough with primary COVID, acute COVID, to land up um, unwell in hospital. That child was um, Afro-Caribbean. She was 15 and she ended up on our intensive care unit. Uh, but apart from that, uh, including children with, with cancer, undergoing chemotherapy who have got COVID, some of my immunocompromised children with primary immunodeficiencies on biologics as well. They've all had, you know, a number of them have had COVID and, and, and actually been uh, incredibly um, well with it. Um, we still don't really know why there is such a spectacular difference between children and adults. And there's been lots of speculation about the innate immune system and about immune senescence in the elderly and, um, and, and mucosal, nasal mucosal immunity and all sorts. And, 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 and this is a lovely paper that's very free to access. Um, and the link will come with the PDFs that come out with this talk. Um, but um, one of the thoughts relates to coagulation differences in children and adults and the ability to develop thrombi. Um, I mean, the honest truth is I have no idea. I'm just really happy that children haven't got particularly sick. The exception is obviously this thing called PIMS-TS. As I explained last time, it caused a huge furor in, um, in, in, in April, May last year when um, this small number of cases was identified in London. And the fear was that there were going to be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases of this um, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Um, being an inflammatory syndrome, it's associated with fever, all children with it are febrile. Um, they're persistently febrile. So, you know, they're all febrile for a number of days. Um, it's uh, it, it, COVID in adults and children has a similar tropism. You know, we know that it's got a tropism to the endothelium, to blood vessels, which is why it causes a vasculitis. And this uh, inflammatory syndrome is definitely got a vasculitic feel to it, which is why it looks a bit like Kawasaki disease, which is also a vasculitis. And you'll see that a number of these children have got uh, red eyes, red lips, um, skin rashes you'll see that the median age of PIMS-TS is older than Kawasaki. Kawasaki is generally in young children. This we've seen in predominantly sort of slightly older children. Um, SARS-CoV-2 has also got a tropism to the brain, which is why a, a significant proportion, and I know 31% in this series, um, we've seen probably more in our, in our experience who present with headaches or have got headaches as part of their phenotype. Uh, it's got a tropism to the GI tract, so a number have got um, significant abdominal pain, a number are thought to have surgical abdomens, some have even undergone laparotomies, the one that we had on PICU last week um, was thought to have appendicitis in their local hospital, so I think if they've got abdominal symptoms, diarrhea, that's something to think about in the child with prolonged fever, but the reason that they're getting sick is that it's got a tropism to the heart, you know, as you saw from the adult data from Robin, um, you know, they get myocarditis, etc. Well, they get exactly that with uh, with PIMS-TS. So they present um, as if they're shocked and they look like a, a septic child. And when we do echoes on them, they've got issues with ventricular dysfunction. Um, the good news is that they improve, um, you know, now that we know how best to, we've got a bit of a flavor of how best to manage them. They get recruited into recovery trial and we manage them with immunomodulation, which is IVIG uh, plus or minus prednisolone or biologics. And, and, and actually the experiences are good. To get it into context, you know, did we see a tsunami of these children? Well, we definitely didn't. Uh, we think around two to four 
per 10,000 children with COVID end up with an multi system inflammatory syndrome. We're doing the, the maths on the back of an envelope. We have about half a million children across Wessex. We, you know, on, probably had about 10%, you know, maybe slightly less um, in Hampshire and Dorset compared to London and uh, Essex and stuff. But let's say about 50,000 children infected, which would mean that we should have had about 10 or 20 cases of PIMS-TS so far, which is about right. I think we've had about 15. So um, it means that for, for an individual GP or a GP practice, you're still extremely unlikely to see any children with PIMS-TS. There's probably no magic to making the diagnosis. I think that if you've got a child who's persistently febrile now when we, you know, we tend to see it two to four weeks following COVID, we've had another big peak, obviously, um, in, the, in the past few weeks. So we're probably coming towards the end of our sort of trickle of, of, of COVID, of PIMS-TS patients. Um, the good news in terms of long-term outcomes is that um, these children who had it in April have now had, had follow-up for six to nine months. Uh, most of them have done really well, actually. Very few um, coronary artery issues. Very few have long-term coronary artery issues. So it is slightly different from Kawasaki in that respect. However, a proportion have had sort of chronic tiredness. Um, you know, and, and I we've said consistent with long COVID. I, I, I think long COVID in children is 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 there. There isn't much of it. I think we haven't seen very much, but. Um, being on PICU, you know, and, and having any multi-system inflammatory syndrome is going to be associated with some uh, element of long-term fatigue. So it's uh, still an evolving field. Um, and, and in terms of long COVID in children, we, we have no idea what proportion of children with COVID end up with uh, something with symptoms beyond 12 weeks. I don't think very many. I think there's going to be more anxiety generated from it than real pathology. Uh, we don't have good pathways for it because we don't have a good feel for it at the moment, but it's something that we're working on. The whole concept of vaccinating children against COVID, um, you'll know with flu that we do it. We don't do it because children get particularly sick. We do it because children are super spreaders of flu. That doesn't appear to be the case with um, COVID. So the current recommendations for vaccinations totally align with the government recommendations of vaccinating the people who are most likely to get severely unwell with, uh, with, with COVID. So um, no trials have been done in children so far. We're hopefully gonna open up for the AstraZeneca trial in children under the age of 16 soon, so maybe in the next month. Um, so the green book, this is just an excerpt from it, it's essentially children with severe neurodisabilities uh, who get recurrent respiratory tract infections and who are in institutional residential care settings where that where that we are we've seen greater transmission of coronavirus. So uh, probably very few children. It's not entirely clear to me who's actually going to vaccinate these children, but I, I'm sure it, it will be primary care. So when you get that sort of um, tier four or not tier, but priority level four of your um, adults with comorbidities who are susceptible to COVID, I'd probably urge you to look into 12 to 16 year olds who fulfill these criteria. It's likely to be very few. You're probably likely to have a bit of a prompt from your community pediatrician or from the community pediatrician overseeing the care of these children or a respiratory consultant. But um, we are keen to get this very small number of children aged 12 and over um, vaccinated. Um, the question about how likely are children to get infected? Um, there's been lo lots of work on this. I, I, 
probably the most robust data has come from household data where you do methodically screen everyone in the household when you've got an index case. And uh, this lovely systematic review that was published in September uh, suggests that children are probably about half as likely as adults um, to have uh, to be infected. And that's based on secondary attack rates. Um, I think it's important to just think that this is based on data from the original strain and clearly the, 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 the more transmissible strain that we've seen uh, since December. Uh, has changed things a little bit and I'll talk about that in a moment but going back to that, that original strain you'll remember in October we had a huge uplift of Covid especially in the northwest and the northeast uh, and fitting with what was on the previous slide you'll see that rates in adults were extremely high with those you know the darkness indicates um, um, incidence rates and you'll see that at the same time, children had far lower rates. So there was a suggestion, a really you know, valid suggestion that children are less likely than adults to um, be infected with COVID. Um, but once again, that's based on the original strain. This is European data that's, that's very similar. You'll see there are different ages and actually adults are up at the top and those different ages um, show different levels of um, infection rates. I think it is important to say that um, there is a difference between young children and old children, which is shown on this graph quite, quite nicely, and that will be relevant to any things I talk about in primary and secondary schools. But um, especially young children have got, uh, with that original strain, appear to have far lower rates of coronavirus um, than adults, and um, older children behave more like young adults. Um, but this is where the story changes a bit. So the, 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 the sort of the, on the left is April 2020 and various ages and slightly murky colours. But children appeared to be have far lower rates of infection than, than adults in April. But you'll see that things start changing in December. Schools had been open since, since September. Um, December, we were a few months in and we were starting to see this new strain starting to circulate. And these data, are, you know, all of the COVID in the country at that point was predominantly centred around London and the southeast and the east. And suddenly children uh, are having some of the highest rates of, of COVID in terms of prevalence, which was really worrying because it was completely different to anything we'd seen so far. Um, one of the explanations for this was simply that the uh, number of social contacts children were having were far higher than adults, and that's because they were still at school. And I think that uh, this is where the jury's slightly, slightly out, but one of the explanations for that rise in cases in December were that adults were still sort of in semi-lockdown. There had been lockdown, had been reinitiated in November, stopped at the start of December, but there was still far less contact, social contact for adults compared to children. So was that rise in children just reflecting uh, contacts rather than or behavior rather than biology. I think what's slightly worrying is the data uh, that the ONS published very recently. So we do weekly data. This is the week ending the 23rd of January. You would assume that with schools having been closed since the end of December, since the 20th or whatever of December, that uh, we would be back to that scenario where, where children had half the rates of COVID compared to adults. Uh, but you'll see on this that that doesn't appear to be the case. And I think there are still some questions about transmissibility, uh, infection rates in children with COVID. 
um, impact of the pandemic. I'm not going to dwell on this because all of you know that it's been hard for children, although they haven't got sick with coronavirus. Uh, been, there's been lots of unintended uh, consequences of lockdown. And we all recognize the lockdown is essential, you know, especially with this transmissible strain that we have to do something to bring down rates in the community because health services are almost nearly broke about two weeks ago. Um, but in terms of their mental health, in terms of safeguarding domestic violence, perinatal mental health, uh, all of those things have um, you know, got worse uh, associated with lockdown. There have been a few pathologies, sort of medically, things like DKA, uh, some abdominal presentations where I think it has contributed to delayed diagnosis, the way that we've restructured our services, why inequality gaps have widened. Uh, a, a really good article in, in BBC News um, website that I've added a link to, just articulating that and putting some numbers to it. Um, so some good news is that we, we have learnt, we recognise that redeploying health visitors and safeguarding services and everything in the first surge uh, was, was a, a catastrophe for families. They became totally hidden and we have not redeployed health visitors anywhere in Wessex uh, during this current um, lockdown. We've also tried to bolster some of the resources on the Healthier Together website for mental health for, for parents and a, a lot of stuff going on in the sphere of mental health um, at the moment. It's, it is Children's Mental Health Week this week. Um, you know, other bits that are going on. There's this tool that's being used, uh, in, at least in Portsmouth, maybe will be introduced soon in, in Hampshire, um, which is a portal for um, 11 to 18 year olds to access uh, support and online counselling with real time discussions with counsellors. Um, we've done some work, we did this a couple of years ago, but we're hopefully going to um, reintroduce this formally into primary schools in, in, in Portsmouth, hopefully, and maybe other bits of the, of the patch, which is just trying to bolster some of that mental health support and getting some of those conversations going for children. And then last but not least, COVID in schools, you know, should they open, should they not? Um, you, you, I wrote an article on this um, in, in October time where I made it absolutely clear that I, I thought there was no justification for closing primary schools. Um, you know, I think I probably changed my stance on that, but at that point that was the, the data we had was that there, we'd looked at lots of schools, there hadn't been many outbreaks. Um, if there had, they'd been very small and they'd been predominantly linked to teachers and teacher to teacher spread was much more of an issue, especially in primary schools. Um, the problem with schools is if you've got high rates of community prevalence and we saw from a big outbreak in a secondary school in Israel and also a school in Paris or schools in Paris that if you open your schools when you've got high rates of community prevalence there is an issue with transmission especially in secondary schools. Um, these are the UK data actually and you'll see this is 13th of December week by week till the 23rd of January in different ages and you'll see that for primary schools you know the closure of schools on the 20th of December you know hasn't really had much of an impact of, of, on rates of transmission uh, of infection in children and, that, and that's the same for all ages apart from children at secondary school so this is 12 to 16 year old children and clearly the closure of schools has reduced transmission in that age group and so that's why we do need a slightly different thought or approach to secondary schools compared to primary schools. I, I'm, I can't say much more about schools, I think it's really complicated. A brilliant webinar that the BMJ put on last week and the link to it's just there. 
lots of unanswered questions about actually what are the symptoms of COVID in children. We know that 30, 40 percent of them are asymptomatic, but are the current sort of symptom triad uh, correct for children? Um, what are the testing strategies for getting schools going again? Um, what interventions reduce transmission and what's appropriate in schools in terms of ventilation, face covering, class sizes, you know, should teachers be vaccinated, uh, if so when, and um, at what rate of community prevalence is low enough to reopen schools. So I think all of those are unanswered questions and they're being sort of thought about, you, you, you know, Scotland opened its schools yesterday, I mean not open, made a, a, an announcement that they're going to reopen primary schools from the end of this month hopefully, so that is very encouraging. School aren't shut you know probably almost my last point is that compared to the first lockdown far more children are at school this time around because the definition of vulnerability has been broadened and I think that's a really good thing and when will things return to normal well it, at some point we need to view COVID in the way that we view flu you know all of the discussion we've had so far it eventually just becomes impossible to manage and there will come a point when you know, people get sick with flu, you know, once we have vaccinated enough of the most vulnerable people, we will be, we will have capacity in our health service to manage the small number of people that get sick with COVID. And then we can start to reopen schools initially and then the rest of society. You know, thank you to um, a couple of very good friends of mine, Alistair Monroe from UHS and Liz Whitaker, who have shared some of their data and slides that I put in here and, and, and lots of resources on the Healthier Together website. Um, in terms of um, stuff for parents. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Sanjay. That was um, a good overview of what's happening. We've just got one question, which is about conjunctivitis. In the COVID patients who have conjunctivitis, what sort of treatment should we provide? I don't know if you can advise on that. I don't necessarily understand the question. So, so why, why is that done any differently or...? Um, it's still a virus, you know, if it's a virus, you don't, you don't, you don't generally, what do you give for viral conjunctivitis? So we wouldn't normally treat viral conjunctivitis, so it would be symptomatic treatment. Indeed, I think it's just, um, you know, absolutely, it'd be exactly the same as before, you know, no, no okay. different. Thank you. Um, we have sadly run out of time. Um, we, um, so I'm going to close off there. I know you would love to talk forever. Sanjay and answer questions. If anyone has any other questions, please email them in and we can answer them in due course. The last thing I wanted to do, to, so thank you Sanjay. The last thing I wanted to do today was share some resource with everyone. And um, through our PCN, we have developed a COVID um, page. So I just wanted to share this. Um, can everyone see that? So essentially, through the New Forest PCN and the technological wizardry of Dr. Neil Moody-Jones, who's one of the partners there, he's set up this website. And essentially in that is all is embedded all the resource that you may need for COVID. For example, there's the Healthier Together website. You can click on it and open, it'll open the Healthier Together web page. There's the Health Visitors um, Pack. There's how to get a test, volunteer support, mental health support, germ defence, long COVID, COVID and recovery. And um, so it's quite a good resource all in one place, which we're very happy for you to share with patients. You Google New Forest PCN and COVID and it will come up. And on that website, there's all sorts of other information on there. Um, it's been a bit of a lockdown project for me. Neil has kindly given me some 
tips on how to build a website page. So through all the webinars that we've done, I've put all this information on there and um, spent hours trying to make it look pretty. And um, another thing is I've done a video on there as well, which is another first for me and my first YouTube video. And it links what patients can do to boost their immunity um, if they do get COVID. So that's quite a good resource. And it links through to a lot of pages that Dr. Nicola Osborne has also been involved in inputting on metabolic health, health and well-being, sleep pages, sea swimming pages, all sorts of other information. So it's quite a good resource one fits all and it's also got quite a lot of information on a low carbohydrate diet to improve people's metabolic health. So I just wanted to leave you that as a resource that you can give out to patients that has all the information in one place. So thank you very much. I'm going to round up now. We've got one more webinar coming out tomorrow which is with Dr Paul Cook and it's at 9 to 10 tomorrow morning so if you're interested in that book in through the Wessex LMC um, site, education site, and I will sign off. So thank you very much.